Good morning once again. We are in a series called The Core, and we're talking about what it means for us as a church to pursue this vision that we believe that God has given us as we exalt, encourage, and engage. Um, and as we... <laughs> I'll, I'll preach in the dark, I don't care. Um, as we, we talk about what it looks like to exalt, encourage, and engage, um, we're, we've kind of looked and said, what are these values that... Just turn them all on and leave them on. <laughs> I don't... Um, what were we talking about? Yeah, this is... It, it's like not good when you lose your place, like, before you even start. So... Um, but what it looks like for us to live out this, what are these values that we want to hold on to and to be very core and central to who we are as a, a church body? In the very first week, we talked about the importance of pursuing God together. Not, not just simply pursuing God. We want to chase after Him. We want to long for Him. We want to thirst for Him and have Him fill us. But we also want to do it together as a body um, in unity and togetherness. And then last week we talked about the fact that we believe um, very profoundly that people matter. People matter to God and people matter to us. And, and one of the things I think you have seen through the history of this church, if you've been a part of it for any length of time, is that that is foundational for who we are. Is that people matter, relationships matter where you are right now in your walk is where we want to come walk alongside you and help you and minister to you and share with you. And we believe that that is what God has done for us and that's what we want to do in this world. And so this week we want to kind of expand on that and each one of these kind of builds on the other. And it's so important to understand all of these that we're talking about as core values um, is we want to see needs and meet needs. So, so at the very core, I think, of who Shiloh has been is this history of generosity. If you listen to someone who's been here for a long time, I promise you, you're going to hear stories of radical generosity, where people are just giving and giving of themselves and of their money to make this place go, to make the mission of God happen through this church. And, and the problem and the pushback, usually when we talk about generosity, is most people say, okay, yeah, that's money. And they turn off um, their mind, they turn off their ears, and they stop listening. But I want to ask you this morning to kind of push back against that grain. To just say, oh, well, it's generosity, it's money, because it is so much bigger than that. And so what I want to do this morning, I want to give a, a few minutes and talk about theology that I think is really important in understanding generosity. And now I want to move into the really practical side of, okay, if we believe this and if this is true about who God is and about who we are, then what does it mean for us as a body of believers? See, I think generosity is at the very core of God's character. Because anything you look at when we talk about generosity, when, you, when we talk about God, generosity is at the very heart of it. So if you go back and you, you go at the very, very beginning, 
and you talk about creation, at the core of creation is generosity. It's God looking out over this void nothingness and saying, I'm going to create something. And the culmination of that creation is man. And he says to man that I've created this and I'm giving it to you to enjoy. And not only am I giving it to you to enjoy, I'm giving you a vocation and a purpose here in the midst of this good creation. Here is my good creation and here is man. And at the center of that, I am giving you. And go back and read the creation account. I give you every seed-bearing plant for, fruit, for food. He looks at, at man and says, it's not good that you can, you're alone, and so I'm going to give you a partner. I'm going to give you a helper. And he gives relationship. That it, it's not good for man to be alone, and so I'm going to give you a helper, someone to lo- walk alongside you. I'm going to give you community. Because you need this. See, at the very core of the creation narrative is a God who loves his good creation and wants people that he has made in his image. Because God makes man, but he makes him in his own image. He says, I want you to enjoy. The only thing in all of creation made in the image of God is man. And it comes out of this place of generosity and love that flows from who he is. If you look at forgiveness, forgiveness always comes from a place of generosity. It it comes from a willingness to give someone a second chance. Because really at the core of what forgiveness is, it's to simply say, I know what you have done. I understand what you owe me. But I am not going to hold that over you. So when God in Jesus forgives you, he says, I understand who you are at your core, at your very nature. I know who you are, but I am not holding that over you. I'm letting that go. And so what we believe as God's people is that we are a forgiving community of forgiven sinners. That we have been forgiven of sin by Christ. And now we are forgiving others as... Do you know that part of that prayer? As we have been forgiven. Which is kind of a scary prayer to pray. Am I right? Father, forgive me as I have forgiven, or as you have forgiven me. Help me to forgive others as you have forgiven me. And then you, of course, look at the cross. And at the the very center of the cross is this generous loving God. Jesus says in in John's gospel that God so loved the world that God gave. God so loved the world that he gave his only 
Son, and whoever believes in him has eternal life. Who God loved, so God gave. God loved this world, so he gave. And the cross is the place where God gives of himself. He gives of himself in the, the form of his Son. Or, or if you look to 1 Peter, and Peter points back to the prophet Isaiah. And he says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Do you want to see what love looks like? Then look no further to Jesus. You want to see what generosity looks like? Look no further than Jesus. Because throughout the, the New Testament, there is this do you want to know what God looks like? It looks like Jesus. The disciples are asking, what, what, what does it look like to see God? What can you tell us about God? And Jesus says, why are, you, why are you asking me these things? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or the Colossians writer, that, that Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. And so many times we, we have this idea that God is here, he's angry and, and mean and vengeful. And then here's Jesus who's loving and forgiving. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I am the image of God. Do you want to know what God looks like? It looks like Jesus. If you want to know what God looks like, it looks like Jesus. That, that's what it looks like to see God. Um, several weeks back, we looked at this passage in Colossians. And, and as we, we allow that framework um, to, to sit here, understanding that generosity flows out of who God is, that what we are doing is His image bearers, or we're being transformed into His image. We are being transformed into His likeness. And so if God, we understand, is this generous, giving being, ultimately personified in Jesus, then we are trying to be shaped and formed into his image. In Colossians, we looked at, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That as you follow Jesus, you're formed into his likeness. It comes through focusing your mind, focusing your heart on things that are above what we see and experience every single day. It's not that we live above those and we don't interact with those things. But it's not where our minds and our hearts live. Our minds and our hearts live with our Savior. And as He transforms our minds, as He transforms our hearts, it gives us the power through His Spirit to interact in a world 
that is broken and bring hope and life and love and grace and mercy out of our generosity because we're being transformed. And it was the vocation of Israel from the very beginning. When God calls Abraham, he says, you're going to go and you're going to be a blessing to this world. The, the reason I'm calling you out, the reason I'm forming you as a people, the reason I am sending you out is so that you will be a blessing. And I think at times it's so easy to forget that. That Israel's vocation is our vocation. Israel's purpose is our purpose. But the, the, the thing about generosity generosity will always flow from a place of gratitude. Generosity comes out of gratitude. Understanding what you have been given, understanding how you have been blessed, and because you have received it, because that is what is filling you up, that is what begins to flow out of you. That is how the world sees you. They see you not as someone who gives because you have means. They see you as someone who gives because it has been given to you. Generosity always begins with a place of gratitude. So I want to turn um, quickly um, to James. And I want to get real practical for just a few minutes about what this means and what this looks like for you and I every single day. James in chapter 2 writes this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Or suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. James writes, and he says, okay, you can see the needs of people. One of the things I think we, we can fall into the trap is, God, please help people who are hurting around us. We, we can pray that prayer. God, help people who are hurting around us. God, help feed people who are hungry. And I think there's this certain point where Jesus looks back at us and says, yeah, that's a great prayer, but I put you here to do that. Don't just simply pray for that person's needs to be met. Go and meet their needs. See what hurts they have. Listen to them. Talk to them. Interact with them. Don't simply pray that God would meet their needs. Go and be the answer to their prayers. 
See, there's this cognitive side of faith that we love to hang our hat on. This knowing side. Oh yeah, I, I believe, believe all the right things. I believe Jesus is God. I believe he died on the cross for me. I believe he's coming back. I believe he's giving me... Okay, great. Here's what James says. Great. I'm glad you believe that. But if that faith, if that belief does not lead to action, then it's really not a faith at all. If that faith does not inform your actions, then there's really nothing there to begin with. If you believe, then it's going to move you to action. I play a little game with my youngest daughter, Kaylee. Um, when she's kind of playing hard to get and running around and being silly, I'll cut my hands together. And I'll say, hey, I got something for you. And she'll kind of look at me and smile and kind of smirk. And I say, no, 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 dad's got something for you. And she'll run over to me with this big smile. And I'll, I'll hold my hands cupped. And I'll say, here, look inside. And she'll peek down inside. And I said, do you see it? She says, yeah. I said, look again. And she'll look closely. And when she looks, I'll grab her. And I'll hold her in my arms and I'll hug her and I'll kiss her and I'll tell her dad loves her. And while what she was expecting, in the first couple times she was really expecting me to have something. I think she, she's caught on now. She knows that there's probably not going to be anything there. But what she gets from me is what she, not what she was expecting to get from me when she ran over. And I, I think a lot of times that, that God says, hey, come on, come on. I, I want you to trust me in faith, and I want you to follow me. And I want you to come and look inside, because I have something great for you. But, but what you're going to get is not what you're expecting. If you follow me, the way that you're going to find life is not the way you're expecting to find life. That you're going to find life and finding that there was nothing really there in the life that you were chasing after to begin with. That, that you're going to find life and giving up yourself and finding your life in me and planting it in me and allowing it to be your identity. And he goes on to talk about Abraham. James does. He says, Here, here's Abraham who believed God. And because he believed God that he was going to make him into a great nation, he offered his son Isaac even when it didn't make sense. Or here's Rahab who hid the spies. And he goes on to, to end this little section in verse 26. And he says, as the body without the spirit is dead. And the word for spirit here is pneuma and it's spirit or breath or wind. 
as a body that is without its spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. How many people have ever been to a funeral? If you haven't, um, is there ever a question who the dead person is in the room? Not really. It's the one whose chest is not going up and down. Like, there's no question. Okay, that person does not have life in them. They don't have breath in them. They aren't alive. He says, you want to see what it looks like to say you have faith? And that faith not inform everything you do in this world? Looks like that person sitting in a coffin in a tomb who's dead and lifeless. That that faith leads us to everything we know, everything we do. See, that's our identity. It's the identity you took on as the baptized. And I, I think so many times the New Testament authors spend so much time talking about baptism as this identity wanting to see it in our lives beyond the point of just going through some water. Okay, if you're going to put on this image of Christ, if you're going to allow it to form you, then when are we going to see it after that fact? When when are we going to see after you go through the water? When are we going to see what transformation that's made? When when you go through the water and you say, I'm dying and I'm being raised with Christ, when are we going to see that in your life? When when are we going to see what that looks like when you reach out your hands and you give generously as God gives? You you say that's formed you, but you struggle to forgive because you want to hold grudges and you don't want to let go of what was in the past. Or you, you say that Christ has come to establish peace and yet you respond to everything in anger. You say you are a cruciformed person, a cross-shaped person. That's what baptism is, is saying, I'm a cross-shaped person. Then the big question is, okay, so when do we see that in our lives? When do we see that flowing out of who we are? Do we see it in the way that we forgive people? Do we see it in the way that we love people? Or do we want to use and take advantage of them? Do we see it in the way that we look at people and we see people who matter and not just simply people as a problem? That the cross and entering into his death and resurrection is supposed to change everything about who we are. It's this new identity that you have taken on. And we believe that it has the power to change the world. Um, A really big date in our history is September 11th, 2001. And 
19 men with box cutters stormed a plane, four planes, and it has radically changed our world. But what we say we believe as people of the cross is that love is greater than evil. That on the cross, evil did its absolute worst it could do. And yet, Christ was victorious over it. Evil did everything, it threw everything at it we could. And yet, Christ overcame it. Let me ask you, if 19 men armed with box cutters and filled with hate could not radically reshape the canvas of our society and our culture and our world, what could 400 people armed with outrageous, self-sacrificing, cross-shaped love If you believe that love is greater than hate, what could it look like if 400 people unified in their mission to preach Christ and see him transform and change, what could it do in this world? What impact could it make? One of my my favorite um, people to turn to, and we just did this as a country this last week is the words of Martin Luther King. And there's part of a sermon that he preached as things were really escalating just a few weeks before he was killed. I want you to listen to these words. I have seen too much hate to want to hate myself. I've seen hate on the faces of too many sheriffs, too many white citizen counselors, Too many Klansmen of the South to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow, we must be able to stand up before our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws and abide by the unjust system, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And so throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children. And as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at midnight hour. And drag us out onto some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us. And we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear as if we are not fit culturally or otherwise for integration. And we'll still love you. But be assured 
that will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. We will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day, we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and to the conscience that we will win you over in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Just knowing what he was enduring and the things he was going through to write those words, I think we can all say it changed and transformed our world. And I just asked that question, that that question has just been on my mind for the last several weeks, is what would it look like if 400 people said we're truly going to embody the love of Christ and we're going to try to look like Jesus and co-suffering love and we're going to go love this world in a way that they don't understand. And we believe that that has the power to change and transform this world forever. It's the reason why 2,000 years ago a man died on a cross and we're still talking about it. Because we believe that love was greater in that moment than all evil could do. That in the death and the resurrection, there was a power greater than anything evil could do. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Empowers you to go and love in this world as Jesus did. So last week we asked you to pray a prayer and to ask God to send someone in your life who felt like they didn't matter. That that you would interact with someone this week who felt like they didn't matter to God. That they didn't matter in this world. That you would have a chance to love them. And I want to kind of expand on that prayer this week as we pray this week. This week, ask God to help you see the needs of one. Not, not just simply for, for someone to come into your world, but allow you to see their needs. And as you see their needs, to be able to meet those needs. Out of a place of generosity out of a place of giving. But I have a few rules for you. A a few rules as you pray these prayers. First, make no assumptions. Don't assume as you meet someone, you know what their needs are. Um, Several years ago, and I think I've told you this story before, but several years ago in youth ministry, I was talking about Jesus... Um, healing a blind man in John chapter 9. 
And we had a lady named Donna at our church who was blind. And so I thought, you know, this is going to be a great opportunity to interview her with the kids and and make a really good point. And so I remember I I had my entire lesson planned around the answer to her question. I'm going to ask her, you know, if you could have anything in the world, what would it be? Obviously her answer would be, I'd want to see And so I'm interviewing her, and we're talking, and I said, so if God could give you anything in the world, what would it be? And she totally messed up my lesson. Um, I I don't even remember what she said, because I was like, that wasn't what I was going to tell the kids. Now I've got to figure out what I'm going to say the rest of the time. But I made this assumption that because I saw her, I knew what her needs would be. How many times do you see someone holding a sign on the street saying, I need money, and just assume that's what they need? What if, instead of just making the assumption and driving by, you got out of your car and sat down with them and talked to them? And the reason I put this rule in here is not for you, it's for me. Because I have a tendency to make assumptions about people. The second rule is this, don't try to fix them. Listen to them. When you see someone, the easiest thing um, to do is, well, I know what the need is and I can fix them. Don't try to fix them, just listen to them. Because maybe what they need more than anyone else, anything else is someone just to sit down and look them in the eyes and have a conversation. Maybe what they need more than anything else is a friend. Don't assume. Don't try to fix them. Three, don't see us in them. Going back to last week, we label things so easily. And here's us in here, and there's them out there. There's no us and them, it's we. Every single person in this world has one thing in common. They were created in the image of God. Some of us are aware of it. Others just need be told that they were created in the image of God, that they were made for something more. And number four is listen to the still small voice. See, this radical generosity does not come through flipping on a switch and making a decision that I'm going to be a generous person. This comes from being formed in prayer. If you remember back several months ago, we did a series on prayer. We said the purpose of prayer is not to persuade God to do what we want, but the purpose of prayer, the primary purpose of prayer is to be properly formed. The prayer is forming us, it's shaping us, it's making us into the image of God, the Creator. And as you're formed in His image, start listening to His voice. Because you start encountering people... I promise you he's going to start giving you new eyes. 
eyes that help you see people differently than you have in the past. Eyes that are shaped by the cross. And as He forms you, He allows you to be part of reclaiming and reconciling His good creation. See, that's the, the most beautiful part of this whole idea of generosity. Is that God did not just save you from the world. That God invited you to be a part of reconciling and redeeming his world. The, the, the ones who were the problem were also invited to be part of the solution. The, the ones who struggled with obedience were invited to call other people to deeper obedience. And it's not I'm just saving you and pulling you out of this world, but I'm, I'm inviting you to be part of the solution to the problem. I'm inviting you to be part of the redemption. How do you do that? You do it through generously giving your life the kingdom of God. Because it's exactly what Jesus did. See, I, I think we struggle so many times today with people wanting meaning, people wanting their life to matter. And the invitation of the cross to take up your cross to follow me is an invitation to a vocation that's so much bigger than you. Because what we're building is something that we believe is going to last. That when everything is said and done, the kingdom of God will still be here. The kingdom of God will endure. And you have been invited to be builders of it. I want to encourage you to begin to pray. God, bring someone into my life who feels like they don't matter. And help me to see the needs of that one. No assumptions, but just listen and get to know and give graciously and generously of yourself. Because we believe that that, the power of the cross, stretches far beyond this physical world. Father, today, we pray that through your Spirit, you would empower us, you would fill us, and Father, you would send us out as we engage those around us with the love of Jesus, a love that has transformed and changed our lives, and we believe and know has the power to change the world. And because we believe that, and because we know that, we are going to live as if everything depends on it. And so, Father, we pray through your Spirit that you would empower us to live as our crucified Lord. And, Father, find our life in him. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. That invitation is for every single person. Come to him, die. You are invited to the feast. You are invited to be part of this kingdom. Um, whatever you need,
come. Um, if we could just simply pray for you, though, wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life, we're going to have shepherds around this auditorium, ministry staff around the back, um, but we're also going to have a couple shepherds in the gathering that's through the library. We would love to just invite you there to pray over you, to pray with you, whatever we could do to meet your needs. So come while we stand and sing. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let your love increase. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Walls of pride and prejudice shall cease.